Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. We are into our third week of a series looking at the culture of Pennington AG Church. Our mission is to lead people to Jesus. So we want to reach those who don't yet know Jesus and introduce them to the loving presence of God we know in Christ Jesus, but also to each other that know Jesus, we want to spur one another on, encourage one another, introduce each other to deeper levels of relationship and knowledge of Jesus. But in leading people to Jesus, we're talking about four cultural values that shape the way and how we lead people to Jesus, each other and outside of the church. In our first week, we talked about teaching a beautiful Jesus, Christ-centered everything, Christ-centered teaching, Christ-centered counseling, Christ-centered children's ministry, even Christ-centered outreach when we're present, that Jesus is the center point of what we do. Last week, we talked about consistent community, a difficult topic off the back of a global pandemic, but talked about the value in the gospel story of community and relationship being restored and consistently being present in each other's lives. Today, we're going to talk about sacred spaces and embracing the sacred nature of space when we come together. Essentially, today, we're going to talk about what it means when we say, as a church, I want someone to be able to experience God's presence. I want someone to come in and not just be impressed by a sermon or by the quality of production. I want them to come in and have a real encounter and experience with a living God, with the presence of God in the room. What does it mean that we value, protect, and embrace sacredness in our spaces? I want to begin with a little bit more of a lengthy passage from the Old Testament that I think sums up a little bit of the sentiment of what we'll be talking about today. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. We're going to look at a story of Jacob as a young man having an experience with God that defines, redirects, and reshapes his life and how he responds to it as a sacred encounter and a sacred space in that moment where he met God. Let's dive into this passage together. Genesis 28 verses 10 through 19. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled towards Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and he stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against, and he lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested his head against. He set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it. 
he named that place Bethel, or Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. This moment is Jacob early on in his life. He is fleeing his own family. He's fleeing his brother after lying to, tricking him, betraying him, stealing and lying to his own father. And now he's running away into the desert, running away from where his people have settled, the promised land, and he's fleeing out of it. But in that moment, while he's sleeping, he has a miraculous encounter with God, a transcendent experience. Jacob is lying in the middle of a desert, so his head is on a rock. Can't be that big of a rock or substantial rock, but a rock he was using as a pillow. He wakes up and he recognizes this space is sacred because I had a special encounter with the living God in this space, at this place. So he takes the rock and he takes it from horizontal, sticks it upright, and then pours olive oil on it and renames that place. He says, this is now a special place. This is a place where my life changed because I encountered the God who made me, my creator. It's so significant for Jacob that actually decades later, he returns back. He's, he's returning to his home and he passes this rock again, this region, and it's been decades. He's gotten married, he's had kids, he's become wealthy, and he stops at the rock and it's almost the identical phrasing of the end of this passage. He takes olive oil, pours it on it, and recognizes this is the place where I encountered Yahweh. This is the place where I encountered God. This is Bethel, the house of God. If you've been a Christian for a long time, many of us have probably one story, maybe several, of an encounter moment like this. Some moment where we were listening to a sermon or there was a prayer time or a friend sharing with us about Jesus or maybe just our own private reading of the Bible or a book by a Christian pointing to Jesus and we had a moment where we felt like we experienced God's presence. We had an encounter with him where it went just from head knowledge to a heart knowledge of realizing there's something here beyond just my normal human faculties. He feels real. There's an encounter I'm having with him. And there's sacredness in that space and in that place. We're talking about building a culture as a church where everyone present in our services and that we create additional prayer services and worship services where people coming into our community can have a sacred encounter with a living God. Part of this is born out of the realization that most of our lives now are calculated, are produced, are glossy, are tailor-made for us. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Most things don't last very long. They're single serving or they're digital, so it passes through my eyes in a second. But God is forever and his presence is real. And what does it look like to disconnect from the fleeting reality of our modern experience to connect into something ancient, to connect into something sacred, to connect into our creator? Now, I'm not talking about creating uh, orchestrated, manipulative, or creepy spiritual experiences. What we're talking about is creating services and prayer moments where we make space to encounter God. Let's talk about what that looks like. First, talk about setting a time and a place aside for sacred purposes. 
setting a time and a place aside. Luke chapter 11 verse 1 is beginning Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, and he introduces it this way. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He comes out, finds Jesus where he is, and the language here seems to indicate this is something Jesus normally does in a place he normally goes to, that Jesus had favorite places to pray in this physical world, places he liked to pray. At times, he liked to pray rhythms and patterns of his life where he would talk with God, where he would reflect on the old scriptures, where he would hear God's voice and speak to him. He had regular patterns and places. The Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus revisits right before he moves to Calvary and the end of his life, the language around Gethsemane is that they had been here before, that this is a place they had regularly visited. Jesus, in his most intimate moments and his most sacred spiritual experiences, goes to and recognizes sacred spaces and places. Even in Matthew, his version of the Lord's Prayer begins with Jesus encouraging them, go to a particular place and close your doors. Make a space to meet with God. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, continue this model in the early church. It begins, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. The disciples, after Jesus left, he ascends into heaven and he says, wait here in this place until I send my spirit to you, until I send the advocate for you. And so they take a room and they make it a sacred space. They set it aside for an encounter with God. And they, in this room, they're praying together. It seems like they must be studying scripture together because they know an awful lot of it coming out of it. They're studying scripture, looking to where Jesus is. They're praying together, encouraging one another, and waiting on the presence of God. Now, the presence of God in this passage does come, and it comes in dramatic fashion. It looks like tongues of fire on people's heads. They're speaking in languages that they don't know or understand. And people are talking all at the same time. And there's fire. And there's a sound of a wind blowing through the room. It's a dramatic experience. And now not everything in this passage is normative. It doesn't always need to be fire on our heads and wind blowing. But the idea of setting aside a space to meet with God, God then entering that space and making it sacred, even the language in this passage before the Holy Spirit enters into the people, it enters into the room and it says the Holy Spirit filled the room. The room was filled before the people were filled. God said, I'm making this space sacred along with you. Now, I'm not advocating for going to find particular spiritual places, an old Indian burial ground or out in Arizona, there's electromagnetic spots. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a human ability to take a space and set it aside for a special purpose. To set aside one chair in your room, 
one path through the woods that you walk, one corner of your basement, a sacred place that you say, this is where I will meet with God. This is where I will listen for his voice. And then empowering that space that I'm going to protect that and that space will be where I meet with God. Even more powerful when we collectively come together and say this building, this room, this space is where we will gather to experience the presence of God. The ancient Celtics, when they were praying, early Christians, they referred to this idea as thin places. Places where the wall between heaven and earth seemed thinner. It was easier to access God's presence. He seemed more easily grabbable from these places. Richard Foster urges us, uh, 20th century writer about spiritual formation, he encourages us to find a place of focus, a loft, a garden, a spare room, an attic, even a designated chair, somewhere away from the routine of life, out of the path of distractions, allow this spot to become a sacred tent of meeting. There's nothing special about the place until we imbue it with its sacred meaning, that this will be a place where I will meet God, and we will wait on it until God meets with us. There's nothing special about the place until we bring the significance and sacredness into it. I have places like this, and I have them growing up. Actually, where we record these sermons, I'm going to break the fourth wall for you a little bit, is actually in the basement of our church offices. This was the place where I grew up in youth group. This was the first place where I felt like I really encountered the living presence of God, able to sense the Holy Spirit, hear his voice speaking to me, sat and sung worship songs together, studied scripture, prayed together. And still, there were times for years, this space had special sacred significance to me. I could enter it and be reminded of what God spoke, and it was easier for me to enter back into that mind frame. In college, we prayed every morning in one classroom, about a large classroom for 200 students in the back corner of Bush campus at Rutgers University. And we would do this every day for an entire year, two semesters. That room became a sacred space for me. I could think about that room and hear God's voice of what he had said to me. I could then walk by that part of campus and I could immediately sense, oh, I remember praying here. I remember hearing God's voice. It became a thin place for me. Even now, the church building at Pennington AG is a sacred thin place for me because I've prayed there so many times. I've walked the aisles up and down. I've prayed over walls and beams and tiles of carpet in the floor and music stands and lights and sound booths. I've prayed over every inch of that room and I've sat in corners and I've walked up and down and heard God's voice speak to me. That place becomes a sacred space because I've set it aside for God to speak and move. We consecrate a space for a purpose and then that space begins to reinforce its purpose on us. We give it significance, and then it then reminds us back. And let me give you an encouragement about this. A lot of conversations about sacred space can feel mystical or sometimes lofty, but I want to give you one encouragement. 99% of experiencing God in sacred spaces is about showing up. It's just about going, getting there, being there, placing yourself in that chair you said is going to be your chair where you read scripture and pray. 
getting in the car early, getting all the kids together in there to get to church on a Sunday with your community, to go out and be at a prayer meeting that you've committed to. Being there is 99% of it. Putting ourselves in the space where God will encounter us, where we will be able to hear him putting ourselves into that sacred space. The second way we do this, aside from setting aside spaces and places, one of the ways we set them aside is by in those places connecting with sacred Christian traditions. I love when God does something new, shakes the rust off, turns in a total new direction, it's fresh and it's exciting. Love those moments in my own personal life and in church movements. But I have found as I've gotten older and as I've been doing this for a while now, I can relate to the teacher in Ecclesiastes. When in Ecclesiastes 1.9 he says, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Now you can hear that passage and be kind of depressed by it. Or you can hear that passage and find such encouragement and life from it. I don't have to create something new from scratch. I'm not constantly making something new, failing and trying and doing it. I can look back to 2,000 years of Christian women and men, sisters and brothers that have done this journey before me, that have wrestled with some of the same doubts I've wrestled with, some of the same temptations I've wrestled with, and I can look at the patterns and behaviors of their lives, of what grounded them, what gave them life and hope and joy and love. What are some of our sacred traditions? How do we connect into them as followers of Jesus? The key to this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Some may know this passage as the Shema, um, a famous Jewish encouragement about God's presence that Jesus quotes when he's talking about what law is most important. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy is the final book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy is to be read as the final statement before the Israelites enter into the promised land. And so it's a reflection and in many ways a summary of the previous experiences, history, and letters that came before it. And when you read Deuteronomy, a part of it feels really repetitious. You can think to yourself, I read this before. This, I read this in Numbers. I read this in Exodus. I read this in Leviticus. Even inside the letter itself, it's 34 chapters, but there are themes that repeat themselves. I've counted at least five times the author repeats the idea about being at the base of Mount Sinai and the Israelites being afraid of the presence of God in fire and in cloud. Five times it repeats that. About a half a dozen times at least, it repeats the fact that they were foreigners that were set free by God into this new promised land. And part of Deuteronomy reads like an urgent reminder from someone that loves you very much 
as you're about to move into a new experience of life. Parents talking to their children going away to college, or friends talking to their best friend who's about to get married. There's a big life change. And throughout it, there's a language of don't forget who you were. Don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget what's made you who you are. Throughout Deuteronomy is this language, do not forget who you are. And do not forget who has made you this way, lovingly and powerfully. Don't forget what God's done in your life. Don't forget his love and grace and mercy. Don't forget his provision. And don't forget that it wasn't you that accomplished all of this. You aren't the center of the universe. You are merely loved by the creator and center of the universe. Into this, we have sacred traditions. All throughout, Jewish tradition and then adapted into Christian, there are traditions and festivals and patterns to remind us back who we are and who our God is. We live right now, 2022, the most distracted, chaotic life ever been lived by human beings. It is easy for me to, in a second, forget what I was just talking about, where I just was, why I'm in this room, why I opened up Facebook. It's so easy to forget in the immediacy of the life that we live. Even more so, perhaps now than ever, it is crucial for us as followers of Jesus to practice some of the ancient sacred traditions that ground us in who Jesus was and is and will be in his church. There are five basic holy traditions that the church has practiced nearly from the beginning of our existence for 2,000 years. The first is communion. We gather together as a church and it engages all five of our senses as we touch it, as we smell the bread, as we taste the drink, as we hear the scriptures read out together, as we see one another partaking in it together. It reminds all of who we are about what Christ did for us. As the bread is broken, we are reminded that his body was broken so we as human beings could be made whole as individuals and as a community. As we drink the cup, we are reminded that we are not worthy to be in God's presence because of our sin, but for the blood of Jesus that covers us and makes us righteous and whole. And so we can confidently enter the presence of God because of Jesus. Communion is a sacred tradition begun by Jesus himself. For 2,000 years, the church has practiced it. We, as we gather around the table and partake in the bread and in the cup, we are reminded of Jesus Christ now and until the day when he comes. The second sacred tradition is baptism, is the embracing and the recognition of Christ's good work in someone who recently encountered the life-changing power of the love of Jesus. It is the recognition of someone coming into new life and into the community of Christ Jesus, the church. In it, we celebrate and are reminded that the church is not just for us who are saved to be talking about and reading scripture about how we're saved, but that we exist as a mission to go and to seek and save the lost, to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In baptism, there is joy and celebration. In baptism, there is the reminder that we are a community. And in baptism, there is the sacred reminder 
that we are not just for ourselves, but that we as a movement exist to be reaching those who don't yet know the love of God. Sabbath is the third ancient tradition and probably the most ignored of modern life. Sabbath being one day of the week where we slow down, we reconnect into the rhythms of God's grace and love for us. That in Sabbath, we gather together as the body of believers. We have church tradition for almost 2,000 years, have selected Sunday as that Sabbath day. And I'll give you a little bit of history. You may ask the question, why not Saturday? Saturday is when the Jews practice Sabbath for millennia. Why Sunday now? Simply put, early Christians said Jesus rose on a Sunday. We know this because of the pattern of Passover, how many days he was in the grave. So we move our Sabbath to honor the day that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and to recognize the resurrection. And so in Sabbath, we gather together, remind ourselves who we are and what we're made for, and to enjoy God's presence among his creation, with each other, eating good meals, going out into nature, laughing, loving, hugging, that in Sabbath we are reminded by disconnecting from the toil and the pace of modern life, we are reminded again of who we are and what Christ has done. The fourth is liturgy. For us in an evangelical church, liturgy is kind of a foreign term. Liturgy being the pattern in which we worship the order in which we order our lives and worship. For us, we have a liturgy and service where we have songs and we have prayer time and we have preaching of the word and we have prayer response. That's a liturgy pattern. We also have a greater liturgy of the church calendar that reminds us of the sacred work of what God has done. We have Advent in December where we're waiting on God's presence and we learn that God is coming he came, he is coming again to restore all things. We have Christmas that reminds us that our God is present and that he came and he understands what it is to be human. We have the season known as Epiphany following Christmas where we celebrate that God is with us and real and present among us. It then moves into the season of Advent where in Advent we recognize, well, now that God is with us, what confessions and repentance does that draw out of me? By the beautiful righteousness of Jesus, where do I now recognize sin in my life I need to be rid of in order to come humbly before him and his cross? We then have Easter, where is the largest, most celebrated historic holiday of ever in human history, where we celebrate that God himself put himself in our place and conquered death and sin forever through the cross and the resurrection. We then have Pentecost, a season of recognizing the Holy Spirit's power in us, the church's call to reach and to save the lost. And we have this liturgy season, the church calendar, to remind us of what God has done, what he is doing, and every year it comes back around again. And then finally, the fifth sacred practice that we have, the church has practiced, is what is known as the daily office, or in our modern language, our quiet times, solitude and silence, daily pulling ourselves aside for the study of scripture, for prayer, for reflection, and to listen to God's voice speaking to us. Pulling ourselves aside and recognizing sacred traditions that God has moved and worked. But you may be asking, well, what are we talking about then with sacred experiences? Or where does the Holy Spirit play into this? 
Let's talk about our last portion. Experience with a sacred presence. Ultimately and simply, we want to create environments where we can encounter the presence of God. Rather than say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. Or rather than say, I can relate to that or that was a fun service. We want to hear people say, in that message, I heard God challenge me on this. In this service, God spoke to me a word of encouragement. In that prayer time, I felt God begin to heal a part of my heart and my soul. That we are, when together, recognizing the moving work of the Holy Spirit present in our service and community. There are several passages that detail out the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I want to simply read a short portion of 1 Corinthians 12, although this entire chapter covers it. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is language maybe some of us aren't familiar with, that the presence of God comes in his Spirit. Upon salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in us. You accept Jesus Christ as Lord, the Holy Spirit begins a work in you. There is a second experience with the Holy Spirit, distinct, where you feel filled with God's presence and it gives you uh, energy and joy and confidence and power to be sharing about that experience and what God has done in your life. But in this moment, the Apostle Paul is talking about when the Spirit comes on you, it does something in you. It does something to you and it can do things through you. But the way the Holy Spirit works through you may not be exactly the same way the Holy Spirit works through me or works through another person. The whole chapter is about that. But I want to talk about three things when we look at and evaluate the Holy Spirit. First one is the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And he is not just a force. He is not just a power. He is a person with personality, desires, and wills. This means he has a will that we can seek. God, what is your will in my life? Holy Spirit, guide me towards that direction. He has a presence that we can experience. We can feel the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he has a personality that we can grieve. There are moments we're doing the wrong thing or being disobedient, ignoring someone hurting, and we can sometimes feel that in our gut as the Holy Spirit grieves that we are not loving and living the way he has called us to. Second, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. This is what Paul is talking about in this passage. There are four main passages that cover it. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, we just read, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11 in 1 Peter. These give different variety of giftings, but all of it to say, when God is moving and working in our lives, it produces change in us. It produces gifts and works and abilities in our lives. The gifts of the Spirit are supernatural works that the Holy Spirit does through us. Some can be dramatic. Somebody speaks in tongues, another language. We read that in Acts 2. Or somebody gives a prophetic word, speaks something about our life that there's no way they would have known otherwise. But also, the Holy Spirit can give gifts of management over resources and finances, can give gifts of compassion for other people. But the Holy Spirit works through each of us uniquely of how we're made and embraces and empowers us. 
The last thing is that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. It produces a life where people can say that person has experienced God's presence. There's one distinct verse about this. The Apostle Paul writes it in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. What it says is, when you have experienced the presence of God, when you have been in sacred places and spaces that God has met, this is what God will produce in your life. If we want to know if someone is experiencing God, if we want to know if a church is filled with God's presence, we can point to, do they, do their people exhibit these nine traits? Do we see them being more loving? Are they more filled with joy? Are they more patient or gentle or good or kind or loving? Do they have self-control in them? That is the demarcation. And talking about sacred spaces is giving each of us, creating opportunities for us to be transformed by the Holy Spirit that we would produce good fruit. A good church, if you're asking, is not one filled with thousands of people a good church is not one with beautiful, fantastic production and lasers and smoke. A good church is not one with an eloquent, beautiful, insightful preacher. A good church is one where the people are filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit and where they are encouraging more fruit in the world around them. This brings us to our last closing thought. When we experience the presence of God, Jesus himself sets this aside time after time. Jesus has his upper room where he's at dinner with his disciples. It's a sacred space as Jesus tells them. This is a sacred moment I'm sharing with you. We have Jesus in the garden with his disciples, a sacred moment of him wrestling with the coming thought of his death. Jesus in a sacred moment at the top of the mountain revealing his glory to his disciples. Jesus experiences and embraces sacred moments in his life. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit and about sacredness when we gather. For where two or three are gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. This passage is not about a magic trick that once once we hit three people in a service, we know God's there. Less than three, maybe, maybe not. We know he's omniscient and omnipresent, but I don't know, maybe. Three people, he's there. What the passage is about is that the Holy Spirit is present in what we know as love. Loving people, loving others, loving God and loving this world into his presence. The Holy Spirit is the expression and the empowerment to love others. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, it's for the betterment of others that the Holy Spirit comes in you. As we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, all of them help us to love others better. Throughout this series, I've quoted this, I think, every single week, and it's kind of an apocryphal quote in and of itself, but St. Augustine says about the Trinity that the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the activity of that love. If the Holy Spirit is the activity of love between the Father and the Son, then the Holy Spirit is the activity of love between you and I. 
between us as a community. And as we lean into the sacredness of God's presence, we don't do so in order to get more heebie-jeebies, the hairs to stand up, me to get dramatic spirit powers. We do it so we can become more loving. We do it so we can experience more fully God's love, that we can love him with our life, and that we can grow in compassionate, empathetic, generous love for one another. This means we can make space sacred by consecrating it for the purpose of love, for loving the God that's made us and for loving each other and to treat that as a sacred, special, ancient practice that God has put inside of us. I encourage you, as we complete this series and next week is gonna be our last one talking about living a missional life, I encourage you, practice and embrace when we are together, embrace when you are home, sacred spaces to encounter the loving presence of God. If you'll pray with me. Some of you watching this may not have a relationship with God. You may not have experienced his presence at all. I wanna give you a chance to experience God's presence, to know Jesus as a savior and as a friend. And as we talked about the Holy Spirit, in this moment, you can have the Holy Spirit come in you and remind you of God's love for you today in this prayer. If you'll pray along with me. God, in this moment, we recognize our need for you, our desire for your presence. I believe that you came to this earth as Jesus Christ, man and God in one, that you lived and you loved in a sacred journey and space that followed you, that you took my sin and death upon yourself on the cross and you died in my place, that on the third day you rose from the grave, resurrected, full of life, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that by confessing my sin and need for you, I may have eternal life and I may have you and the fullness of life in this earth. You gave your life for me. I give mine for you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Pennington AG Church.